you know, I really hate it when someone tells you about some kind of topical event or a scandalous story doing the rounds in the mainstream press or just maybe some benign local news event and you respond with something such as, I hadn't heard about that, only to watch their face screw up and hear them annoyingly ask the question of, have you been living under a rock? In saying that, you must have been living under a rock if you had not heard all the noise, discussion, kerfuffle, if you will, over the acquisition of Twitter by billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk. It has no doubt led their business news media headlines over the past couple months, albeit the topic of inflation, rising interest rates, crashes in the crypto market, pullbacks in the financial markets have certainly circled back to the top of the list now by the time I'm recording this, but the story of the Twitter acquisition is interesting given how it came to be, how it took place, where Twitter sits amongst its peers in the social media universe, whether you would even compare Twitter with a social media company like the ones that we know, like a like an Instagram or a Facebook or a Snapchat or a TikTok, whether something could like this could happen to another company like a Facebook, uh, whether Twitter is even just a good business to acquire from a pure financial standpoint. And this podcast episode is not here to touch on the other often continuous Elon Musk-related drama associated with this deal and not associated with the deal. Uh, for example, things like the news that I believe it was Business Insider were the ones that actually broke it. But a few weeks ago, they learned of a story wherein SpaceX paid a settlement with a flight attendant who had stated that Musk exposed himself to her and, and propositioned her for sex. And then there's the other thing about this whole acquisition about whether people, but what people are allegedly worried about whether Musk would allow Trump back onto the platform um, under the new ownership. Uh, I don't really care about all that stuff. And, and that's not to say some of those aren't important questions or topics, but that's not the point of this episode or this podcast. I want to focus on the story of this happening, how it happened first and foremost, as that in itself is a bit more interesting than some random blue check Twitter user threatening, threatening to leave the platform if Musk buys it. But all of it ties into a question of, does it matter that Twitter is going private? What does that actually mean? Do we care? And probably the hardest question I think to answer, if not probably impossible at this stage because it's very early on in the journey and things keep changing, but will this end up being a sound investment decision from Elon Musk? Well, without further delay, just a friendly reminder that you are listening to the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 67. Please remember to just subscribe and give a star review on your favorite podcast platform of choice, be it Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever you use. And today we're going to discuss the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. Well, the story kind of begins with this surprising news that broke on the 4th of April that Musk had taken out a 9.2% stake in Twitter by buying up shares in Twitter on the market. And it's important to remember that one doesn't simply just acquire, you know, almost 10% of a company in a single day. This type of transaction uh, happens over a period of days or weeks or months even. There's various reporting on this topic of exactly when Musk began taking 
a stake in Twitter. The consensus seems to be, or the agreement seems to be, that it probably started around January in 2022, so at the start of this year. Now, under US federal laws, investors must lodge with the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, when they have taken out a stake in a company that is greater than 5%. So if the stake stays below 5%, you don't necessarily need to disclose anything. However, that the moment that single stake ticks over 5%, you have 10 days under US laws to inform the SEC and thus make it public and knowable that you have this stake in the company. And why might you ask? Well, these are market-listed public companies that have many, many, many other shareholders, some very big shareholders that might own significant stakes, like they might own 1%, 2 3% of the company, uh, all the way down to retail traders like myself that own you know, a borderline insignificant um, proportion of the company, like a few thousand dollars or whatever. And those shares give you voting rights. And someone with a significantly high holding, say greater than 5%, say like Musk's announcement of 9.2% holding, well, then they have a lot of influence over that company and the board of directors given the amount of voting rights that comes along with that holding. Now, we have very similar laws here in Australia. If you ever owned shares in a company on the ASX and you've looked at like announcements that come out about that company, you might have noticed a market announcement in the past um, usually stated something along the lines of a changing substantial holdings. So under the ASIC, so Australian Securities and Investment Commission, I guess our equivalent to an SEC, uh, disclosures must be announced where they cross the 5% threshold, including if that substantial holding increases or if that substantial holding goes away, like they reduce their holding or they sell out uh, even partially and it, and it dips below that 5% threshold. And also the other type of disclosure that needs to be made as eventually what has happened with Musk and Twitter is if the entity or the person with that substantial holding moves to actually make a takeover bid for the company. So one issue that has arisen from this timeline events is that Musk allegedly failed to abide by this 10-day rule of disclosure in the United States in that he hit the milestone of greater than 5% on approximately March 14. Thus, the last day to inform the SEC would have been March 24, so 10 days later. However, as I kind of said at the top of the podcast, this news broke to everyone on April 4. Now, this story is quite widely reported, but um, referring specifically to a story from CNBC dated 13th of April by Sam Sheed, which specifically outlines the timeline events and that a lawsuit was filed in New York on the 12th of April on behalf of multiple Twitter shareholders due to Musk's failure to disclose the holding in a timely manner. Again, you might say, so why does it matter to these Twitter shareholders that have filed a lawsuit? Well, because when these events occur, and especially with a public figure like Musk, there's usually a bump in the share price. And when it comes to this particular scenario with Elon Musk announcing his stake in the company, there was quite a very decent pop in the share price of Twitter when this news broke. Now, remember, Musk is a successful entrepreneur on, in his own right. He has been a founder and co-founder of many companies which have been snapped up for huge sums later on. Most notably, he was a founder of what became PayPal uh, and that was acquired by eBay back in the days. He's the current CEO of both Tesla and SpaceX. So if he is making a business decision such as this acquisition, 
you know, certainly excitement and buzz would quickly follow. The same thing would happen if a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett made these moves, regardless of what you think of them, they do have a successful track record in either turning small little startups into Goliath companies or just making extremely wise investment decisions like a Buffett. So when news broke that Musk had taken a 9.2 stake in Twitter, the share price jumped up and closed 27% higher that day. So circling back to this lawsuit we're talking about, if you were someone who owned Twitter shares, but you had sold your shares prior to the news of Musk's 9.2% stake being declared, but after the date in which he should have declared it, you could be pretty annoyed, right? Because if Musk had actually followed the correct 10-day rules of the SEC, you would have actually still been holding your shares at the time of when the announcement should have happened and probably gained a 27% windfall in your investment. That, put simply, is the claim being made in this lawsuit. Now, admittedly, I can be a bit cynical, so this is just my personal opinion, but perhaps what will happen is a fine will be levied against Elon Musk given the late disclosure and not abiding by that 10-day rule, but I imagine it will be a drop in the ocean relative to the money he made building up a 9.2% stake in the company and then having that jump in value by 20, 27% in a single day once that was announced to the broader market. Okay, moving on, April 4 has passed the date of the disclosure of his 9.2% stake in Twitter. What next? Well, the next day, April 5th, the CEO of Twitter, Parag Agrawal, tweets the following, I'm excited to share that we're appointing Elon Musk to our board. Through conversations with Elon in recent weeks, it became clear to us that he would bring great value to our board. He's both a passionate believer and intense critic of the service, which is exactly what we need on Twitter and in the boardroom to make us stronger in the long term. Welcome, Elon. Also on April 5th, Musk responds to that tweet from Parag and states, looking forward to working with Parag and Twitter board to make significant improvements to Twitter in the coming months. Additionally, on the same day, although I think this is deleted now, Musk posts a poll for his followers, which asks, do you want an edit button? Referring to editing tweets in which 4.4 million people voted and overwhelmingly majority voted yes. Parag, the CEO of Twitter, even shared the poll himself, stating that the consequences of that poll would be very important and to please vote carefully. Okay, and also on April 5th was probably one more thing to note. Jack Dorsey, the co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, tweeted, I'm really happy Elon is joining the Twitter board. He cares deeply about our world and Twitter's role in it. Parag and Elon both lead with their hearts and they will be an incredible team. So a little bit of fun trivia for you. Jack Dorsey is also the founder of Block, which is their financial services company, which ended up acquiring Australian buy now, pay later, darling Afterpay. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting because at this stage, the board of directors at Twitter, which had 11 members at the time of Musk's investment, thus if Elon's getting invited to the board, he'd be the 12th board member. These board of directors and from my perspective, the wider business and finance media weren't exactly sure what would come next. As in, would Elon push further to acquire more shares? Would he accept this board seat and try and exert influence over the company uh, and exert changes from that point? What large strategic changes was he actually going to try and push for? You know, an important consideration to flag at this point is that part of Twitter's offer to Musk to join the board was a restriction on how much more Twitter stock he could own. Twitter stated that whilst he would serve on the board, he could not own any more than 14.9% of the company's shares, 
either as an individual or as a member of a group. So at this point, there's a few things here to consider. Firstly, it's clear that Musk is seeking change at Twitter and seeking to influence company direction for a variety of things. The poll I mentioned before, adding the edit button is probably just a very, very small example of this. At a broad level, Elon has expressed that Twitter has an important function in democracy, a type of digital town square, and that free speech is imperative to ensuring trust in the platform. And to be clear, I'm kind of paraphrasing Musk there. He didn't say that verbatim. Um, at all is just a paraphrasing of some of the things he had said. But with all these ideas for change and company direction, the offered board seat presented several challenges. First and foremost, when you sit on a board of a company, you have what is known as a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders and their interests, meaning your actions must be in the interest of the shareholders. Musk is famously quite aware of the responsibilities of being a director of a public company and that the fact that words matter. In August 2018, famously a phrase that became a meme in of itself, Musk tweeted, quote, M considering taking Tesla private at $420, comma, funding secured. And at the time, Tesla stock was trading around the $340 mark. It surged to $390 on this tweet alone, as investors understandably thought that perhaps Tesla was going to be bought out privately at $420 per share, as Musk hinted at in his tweet. Now, this simple tweet caused a firestorm of attention as it was found to be misleading, causing a fine from the SEC to the tune of close to $40 million. I believe the fine was not just levied at Musk himself, but also at the company, uh, Tesla that is, and subsequent shareholder lawsuits have sprung up following that SEC investigation and settlement. Now, in fairness, I will note here, as reported by Reuters on the 3rd of February this year, that Musk has stated in court filings that his now infamous 2018 tweet about a transaction to take Tesla private was, quote, entirely truthful. Okay, so let's get back to it. The 5th of April has been and gone, and Twitter's invitation to Musk to join the board remains. An article also on the 5th of April by CNBC is titled, Elon Musk's Twitter board seat raises questions about his plan for the company. This article speculates on what it might mean for Elon to join the board, that perhaps this offer from the board is them getting ahead trying to be proactive. It also quotes a market analyst who says that it's unlikely that Musk would pursue anything dramatic like a private takeover and that there's no reason why Musk would want to take over the company as long as Twitter, quote, executes on his ideas. So a few days pass. On April 11th, the CEO of Twitter, again, Parag Agarwal, tweeted that Elon Musk had decided not to join the board. Now, I won't read the entire post here because it's quite lengthy, but he notes at the end of his post where he states Musk had turned down an appointment to the board and that, quote, there will be distractions ahead, but our goals and priorities remain unchanged. The decisions we make and how we execute is in our hands, no one else's. Let's tune out the noise and stay focused on the work and what we're building. There will be distractions ahead. In hindsight, this line must have been Parag acknowledging that further noise from Musk was likely to be expected. Now, a writer I've mentioned here on past episodes, Matt Levine of Bloomberg, noted the following in his newsletter on the 12th of April. Yesterday morning after he declined the board seat, but before that was announced, Musk tweeted a poll proposing to convert Twitter San Francisco headquarters to a homeless shelter since, quote, no one shows up anyway. Later that day, he tweeted another poll this time asking his followers whether they wanted to delete the W in Twitter. Both polls were later deleted. (laughs) 
at the time on the 12th of April, the Twitter share price still had that bump in it from the excitement and the news trading approximately 13 to 14% higher than what the price was pre-Musk announcing his 9.2% stake. So not as high as a 27% bump on the initial day, but still upwards uh, on where it was before the news broke. We move on. Thursday, the 14th of April, Musk made his intentions clear. He updated his filing with the SEC and formally advised Twitter that he would like to acquire the remaining shares of Twitter in entirety for $54.20 each, which values the company slightly more than $40 billion. And I'll read you the note sent to the board that day from Musk. He says, quote, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe, and I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. As a result, I'm offering to buy 100% of Twitter for $54.20 per share in cash, a 54% premium over the day before I began investing in Twitter, and a 38% premium over the day before my investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer, and if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it. Also on the 14th of April, Elon Musk was coincidentally scheduled to appear at the TED 2022 conference via a video call. Of course, with everything in the news, the questions levied at him were not just about Tesla and electric vehicles and SpaceX. The host also quizzed Musk about the Twitter bid and Musk's ideas of free speech. Elon interestingly said, quote, this is just my strong intuitive sense that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. Quote, I don't care about the economics at all. On April 15, the board of Twitter announced that it will be executing a limited duration shareholder rights plan, which is quite a mouthful, but to use the term being bandied about the media at the time, the Twitter board had taken a poison pill approach to try and stop Musk from acquiring more of the company. Now, poison pill is a term referring to how captured spies or foreign agents would slip themselves a poison pill and kill themselves so as not to reveal the state secrets under imprisonment and torture the kind of stuff you'd see in a James Bond movie, more or less. And in this case, the reason why it is being referenced as a poison pill approach is that it allows Twitter to flood the market with new cheap shares in the company and thus dilute everyone else's holdings, including Musk, theoretically stopping him from continuing to build his stake. The specific plan from Twitter was to automatically kick in should a shareholder own more than 15% of Twitter. And once that 15% threshold would be crossed, Every shareholder, except the person who crossed the 15% line, would be entitled to buy discounted Twitter shares, hence the flooding the market with more shares and diluting the person who achieved the 15% stake. Now, diluting doesn't stop it altogether technically. It's a tactic. It's not a complete foolproof plan to completely stop a hostile takeover. It only makes it harder for the person acquiring their stake because it reduces their foothold once those cheap new shares flood the market. This is a tactic that has been used in the past, so it isn't a completely new thing. Netflix has adopted this strategy before. Famously, Papa John's Pizza adopted this strategy after their then-CEO and biggest shareholder, John Schnatter, stepped down amid public reporting that he had used a racial slur. 
John actually owned almost a third of the company at the time of stepping down and a poison pill approach would have been a tactic from the board of Papa John's Pizza to effectively reduce his power in the company. Now, at this point, whilst Musk is the biggest shareholder at this time in Twitter, there are also other big shareholders in the company. They might not match a 9.2% stake like Elon Musk, but they might have significant sums invested, potentially representing anywhere between 1, 2, 3, 4, up to 5% of the company. So on April 15th, a Saudi billionaire investor in Twitter, Prince Awalid bin Talal, a man which Time magazine once dubbed the Arabian Warren Buffett, and he's chairman and CEO of Kingdom Holding, Co- Holding Company, which is a large Saudi conglomerate and very large shareholder of Twitter, tweeted, I don't believe that the proposed offer by Elon Musk of $54.20 comes close to the intrinsic value of Twitter, given its growth prospects. Being one of the largest and long-term shareholders of Twitter, my company and I reject this offer. Musk responded very quickly in his own tweet saying, interesting, just two questions if I may. How much of Twitter does the kingdom own directly and indirectly? What are the kingdom's views on journalistic freedom of speech? Question mark. The last question appearing to be a subtle reference to the 2018 assassination of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of the agents of the Saudi government. Now, remember this investor, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, as he actually circles back into the timeline a little later. By the 20th of April, we had not heard a decision from the board of Twitter and Musk updated his filing with the SEC to specifically outline exactly how he was actually going to finance this offer. $40 billion is a lot of money. Now, the plan to finance the deal was, broadly speaking, broken down into three parts. First, Musk had secured a commitment from Morgan Stanley for $13 billion in lending to Twitter itself to assist in financing the purchase. Secondly, Musk had also secured $12.5 billion in lending to himself personally, which is also from Morgan Stanley, and this was in the form of a margin loan facility. Now, a margin loan is where you borrow money from a bank or a, or a broker and you use equities such as shares on the market to secure the loan. So in this case, Musk was using his significant Tesla shareholdings to borrow the $12.5 billion on margin. Now, the third aspect of the financing was an equity commitment letter, which meant that Musk had agreed to come up with the $21 billion himself. And we'll find out a little bit more about this later, but it doesn't mean he has to himself pay for all of it. He could find fellow investors to pledge equity towards this amount. But otherwise, in a worst case scenario, if he found no one else to invest in the company with him, he would be on the hook for that $21 billion and the remaining amount. So Musk had put a plan forward to the board, a serious plan of exactly how he'd fund the deal. And that's not to say the Twitter board weren't taking it seriously before this. Of course, they were considering plans like that poison pill approach, but they certainly took it more serious from this point once, to reference Elon back in 2018, funding had been secured. The board could now safely say that Musk had the funds to make it happen. The question then became, what would their answer be? Would the takeover offer be in the best interests of shareholders in the company? Should they maybe be, be trying to squeeze Musk for more? Are there other buyers not named Elon Musk that might be interested in Twitter? These would have been questions debated amongst the board at this time. And so a few more days pass. And finally, on April 26th, on Monday, the news broke that Musk had successfully reached an agreement to buy Twitter for approximately $44 billion. As reported here by the Associated Press on the same date, Musk said in a joint statement with Twitter that he wants to make the service, quote, better than ever, 
with new features whilst getting rid of automated spam accounts and making its algorithms open to the public to increase trust. Later in the article, it notes, Twitter said the transaction was unanimously approved by its board of directors and is expected to close in 2022, pending regulatory sign-off and the approval of shareholders. Following acceptance from the board, Musk moved to shore up fellow investors, as I mentioned previously. To do this as when trying to court any investor, Musk needed to present his vision for the company moving forward. As reported by the New York Times on the 6th of May in their article titled Inside Elon Musk's Big Plans for Twitter, they advised that a pitch deck had been presenting or going around being presented to investors in the prior days and it focused on several key plans and goals for Twitter. Now, there's a fair few of these, but in summary, some of the key headlines are increasing annual revenue to $26.4 billion by 2028, and that would be up from $5 billion in annual revenue in 2021, cut down on the reliance of advertising dollars for revenue, uh, and to do this by increasing their share of subscription revenue. The plan would be by 2028 to generate about $12 billion in revenue from advertising, but $10 billion from subscriptions. And one of these subscriptions is an untitled product that isn't named apparently in the deck or reported by the New York Times here, except that it's known as Product X. Although the New York Times note that Musk had hinted at a subscription-based ad-free Twitter option. So that's potentially one possibility. Another one was increasing revenue to $15 million from a payments business, which would be embedded on the platform by 2023. In terms of users of Twitter, lift the amount of Twitter users from the around 217 million it has now to 600 million by 2025 and 931 million by 2028. And Musk's Twitter presentation and goals and vision for Twitter clearly started to work. There's a couple indicators of this as equity commitment or fellow investors started to jump on to the deal with him. Uh, one of those was the man that didn't want to have anything to do with Musk uh, buying Twitter, Prince Awalid bin Talal. That happened on April 15th when he announced that he and his holding company rejected the offer from Musk. Approximately three weeks later, so around the 5th of May, this is reported here by Reuters, Prince Awalid bin Talal had done a 180 and said that it was great to connect with his new friend Elon Musk and that he and his holding company or his conglomerate look forward to rolling our $1.9 billion in the new Twitter and join you on this exciting journey. And the other way you could tell that he was getting more assurances from fellow investors who wanted to join uh, this private buyout of Twitter is that he changed his plans for financing. So this was reported by Matt Levine of Bloomberg on May 27th. So remember there was like three stages or three parts to his financing. He was getting a loan from Morgan Stanley to Twitter itself. He was getting a personal margin loan to finance some of it. And then he had that extra amount of equity that he could be on the hook for, but he could obviously also look for fellow investors to join him on. So this is reported on May 27th. So he had a change in the financing. He still had the $13 billion loan from Morgan Stanley to Twitter itself. He had scrapped the margin loan completely. There was no longer going to be a margin loan against his Tesla shares and the remaining amount was $33.5 billion of equity. Now, remember, if he, under the rules of it, couldn't come up with it himself, he would be on a hook for quite a lot of that. But 
Also, he could find equity commitment from fellow investors, which he clearly had started to do. One of the people that he mentions that he was trying to get to stay invested in Twitter was the person also we mentioned earlier, Jack Dorsey, who's an original founder of Twitter itself and to roll his investment onwards into the new buyout of Twitter. Okay, so that is your high-level timeline on Musk's acquisition of Twitter. I should probably say continued, you know, dynamic because it's still happening at the moment and it's not actually fully completed, but the acquisition of Twitter. We're going to talk about and finish the episode off on two sort of broad points. So firstly, we're going to discuss Twitter versus the other social media companies in terms of what its place is versus those other social media companies. And secondly, we're going to talk about this other bit of drama that came up more recently of is Musk trying to back out of this deal or is he just simply trying to negotiate a better deal? So let's just jump into it. So I think one interesting take on this is comparing Twitter to other media or social media platforms. Uh, Because one of your first thoughts hearing, maybe one of your first thoughts hearing about all this is who the hell uses Twitter? And I say this as I do have a Twitter account, but I, I'm, I guess I'm saying that from a statistical point of view in that it's much more likely for you that's listening to this episode to be engaged on a platform like Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube than it is for you to be engaged on a platform like Twitter. Now, I'm taking some of these uh, some of this data just from a statistics website. So this is looking at the popularity of social networks worldwide. So this is not just... US data or US users, but actually worldwide users. And it's ranked um, by number of monthly active users. So at the moment, Facebook sits around the 2.9 billion monthly users. YouTube trailing behind 2.5 billion. WhatsApp has about 2 billion. Instagram, one or close to 1.5. TikTok has just over a billion now. And then we keep going down. Snapchat has around half a billion And then the one that has a smaller, well, it's not the smallest, but if you keep going down, then you finally hit Twitter. So currently estimated to be around 436 million users on a monthly basis. So not very comparable to the giants like a Facebook and an Instagram and a TikTok. And TikTok's obviously being one of the more fastest growing uh, media platforms at the moment. Um, Some other data, this is from Pew Research Center. um, So it's probably a bit more reliable, but this is looking at and this is only at US adults. So it's the percentage of US adults who say they ever use, and then it's one of the platforms. So the percentage of US adults who say they ever use, and YouTube is the highest, so 81% of adults saying they use it. Facebook at about 69%, Instagram at 40%, Pinterest at 31%, LinkedIn 28%, Snapchat 25%, and then you hit Twitter at 23%. The other interesting thing that Pew Research Center pointed out is that a minority of Twitter users actually produce the vast majority of tweets. So another bit of data that they found is that amongst US adults who use Twitter, the top 25% of users by tweet volume produce 97% of all tweets, while the bottom 75% of users produce just 3%. And this was according to an analysis by Pew Research conducted over a three-month period in 2021. But another comparison might be to look at the financials of these different companies. 
and we can sort of break down and do some easy comparisons here. So let's take Google first or Alphabet as its parent company is known. And yes, granted, Google is a Goliath company. It has many moving parts and YouTube is only one of those parts. But kind of just bear with me as we go through some of these different companies. So Google's latest quarterly results from March this year. Remember, this is quarterly, so not annual, but quarterly. They had revenue of $68 billion. Now, Meta, which is the new parent company or the new named branding parent company of Facebook, also Instagram and WhatsApp, their latest quarterly results show revenue of $27.9 billion. Now, ByteDance, now this is one to caveat because it's not actually listed on the stock market. So we kind of don't have very transparent view over it. And I don't have a quarterly breakdown but this was reported by Reuters in January this year. So TikTok owner ByteDance saw its total revenue grow 70% year on year to be about $58 billion in 2021 alone. Now, again, let's probably put a lot of asterisks on that one because if you actually look at the article, which you always should do with these ones, it says it sources, quote, people familiar with the matter. So we'll take it with a grain of salt, but a guide nonetheless. And finally, last quarter, Twitter quarterly revenue was $1.2 billion. And their net income was just half a billion, so about $512 million. So what I'm trying to say is Twitter, compared to these other big uh, tech and social media companies, it, it is, a, is a very small fish amongst some very large sharks, more or less. So not only is it uh, smaller in the amount of use it gets, uh, but it also is not nearly an amount of, not nearly as such a profitable Goliath as some of those other companies out there. Now, again, going back to Musk's plans for Twitter, one of them is he wants to lift the amount of shareholders. He wants to get close to a billion, sorry, not shareholders, users, but he wants to get close to almost a billion users by 2028. He also wants to add subscription to the platform as, as well. So not just relying on advertising revenue, but also subscriptions. So he obviously has grand plans for Twitter, but this is kind of how Twitter sits amongst its peers as it stands. So the other thing I want to talk about is, I don't know what to call it, the bot issue, or is Elon trying to get out of this deal? So on May 13, Musk tweeted that the Twitter deal is, quote, temporarily on hold, pending details supporting the calculation that spam slash fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. So what's going on here is that Twitter had estimated or had been estimating that around 5% of users were more or less like spam or fake accounts. Musk was trying to, I guess, hinting that he thinks the figure is more than 5%. And I guess the speculation of this was, is he trying to angle at trying to get a better deal? If it, like if he's If he thinks that the amount of spam fake accounts represent more than 5%, then maybe that devalues Twitter and maybe he can try and get a better deal on his acquisition. In terms of the whole putting the deal on hold pending the details of this uh, analysis of the amount of fake accounts, um, again, as I'll reference again, reported by Matt Levine of Bloomberg the day after on May 14, this more or less is what he says is this isn't really a thing because Musk signed a binding contract to buy Twitter. So I think probably the important consideration around all this because I don't know, this is ongoing, it's dynamic. Everything I read seems to indicate that he can't just pull out of this deal by now. And if he did so, he would run the risk of you know, massive lawsuits or being forced by the courts to actually move ahead with the deal as was signed by the contract. 
but there's a couple kind of like external factors that are probably playing on Musk here because remember he's some, using some of his own wealth to finance this as well. And so in the background of all this happening, the markets just generally have not been having a good time this year, but especially over the last month or so. And for example, so Twitter had that, like I said, it had that initial sugar hit to the share price when Musk announced this acquisition of $54.20 or around that figure. And like I said, it, it bumped up to around that price because that's kind of what share prices do. They, they tend to go up to around the price of, of the acquisition proposal. But Twitter amongst a lot of the tech stocks and, and pretty much amongst a lot of the broader market has pulled back. It's actually trading closer down to around 40 US dollars a share at the moment because the whole market has tended to pull back at the moment. And remember, if Musk is potentially maybe selling down some of his Tesla stock, for example, to pay or help finance this, I don't know if he is, like this is just speculation, but if he was to do that, his Tesla stock has also pulled back significantly. It used to be, it was trading closer to a, above $1,000 a share a few months ago, and it's now closer to around $700 US dollars a share. And the other thing that's on the background of this is rising interest rates because a lot of the fellow investors that are coming along for the ride might be venture capitalists and hedge funds. And they, when I say they, I mean everyone has just been used to cheap financing and cheap credit for such a long time. And now it seems like we're hit a stage where that's changing for the first time in a long, long time where that access to cheap credit is kind of either drying up or it's just getting more expensive. And that's probably playing on to the deal in the background. This market conditions as this deal has played out has become less favorable. But the important thing to know about all of this as I wrap up the episode, of course, is this is, as I say, dynamic. It's still ongoing. I hope this gives you a bit of an understanding around what went on in the background behind the acquisition of Twitter or the ongoing acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. But my name is Dion. You have been listening to the Market Pulse podcast. This has been episode 67. So like I say at the top of every show, please subscribe, give a star rating on your podcast platform of choice. But I hope this episode finds you well. Have a good rest of the week. Cheers. Cheers.